Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I talked to Ann Sung, a member of the board of the Houston Independent School District, the largest school district in Texas and the seventh largest in the United States. It serves nearly 200,000 students at 276 campuses. In this timely conversation about school reopening, we talked about our board's unanimous decision to mandate masks, despite the Texas governor's executive order forbidding them, the challenge of addressing students' mental health and overcoming learning loss. We also talked about how COVID exasperated existing needs of families in her district and how she and her colleagues are working to provide wraparound services and quality career and college pathways. I loved hearing about Anne's path from future scientist to teacher to elected official and how an eighth grade teacher planted a seed that never really left her. So Anne Sung, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you so much. Happy to be here, Debbie. It's great to see you. And I was really looking forward to talking to you in particular, because as a school board member, of course, we're all focused on kids going back to school right now. And uh, it's happening all over the country. And uh, we're all watching. I've got my own kids just back in school finally. and so relieved to have them back in school full time. I'm so anxious that they're going to stay there. Um, and, you know, and also, of course, worried about their public health. So I'm just would love to just start with kind of an open ended question with, you know, how is it going going back to school in Houston uh, so far? You know, it's the same in Houston. So we brought all of our kids back, well, a few exceptions, virtual school for um, students with, who are medically fragile. But we brought almost all of our students back to school in person. Uh, my own daughter is back in school starting kindergarten. And we are similarly excited to have our kids back. I think that's made a world of difference in terms of the instruction and support we're able to give students. But obviously, we're also taking every precaution that we can because we're going through the Delta variant wave right now in Houston. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, it was you're thinking about public health measures there. You're in a really dicey situation in Texas where you have your governor who's banned mask mandates. You have your school board voted unanimously, despite that order, to go ahead with a, with a mask mandate, which is in line with your county's order, again, against the state. How is that playing out? How are you, you know, what's kind of the next steps of just where it is? Are kids wearing masks through all of this? And then, you know, just how are you feeling about having to kind of navigate these really tricky waters? Yeah, and honestly, the governor's order came as a surprise to us because a year prior in, in 20, 2020, 
um, Governor Abbott had required masks. And so, you know, we had implemented masks in our schools for the students who were in person last academic year and, you know, really had no problems, right? It really helped us to keep our schools open to, to families who elected to come to school in person last year. Um, we had very limited outbreaks and it really gave families the confidence to come back to school this fall. So when the governor issued that executive order stopping masks, I heard a lot from parents. He said, well, now we're worried, right? We were starting to feel comfortable with sending our kids back to school in person. But if we're not going to have universal masking, you know what the science says is the masks help us protect each other. And if only half the kids, for instance, are wearing masks, and that still puts everybody at risk. So there's a lot of um, anxiety among Houston families. Um, overwhelmingly, the outreach I received was in favor of universal masking. So we did, as you say, um, you know, the entire board voted unanimously to support our superintendent in implementing the mask mandate. We do think that the governor's executive order is just overbroad, seems to um, grab authority where we're pretty certain that local health authorities like our county health department and even independent school districts have. You know, we, we need to protect our citizens and in our case, we need to protect our students and our employees. And so we did go ahead and proceed with universal masking and HISD, and it's going well. You know, just as in the previous year, you know, we have very few students who are um, uncomfortable with the masks. You know, they, they take breaks, they go outside and, you know, take a little mask break while they're on recess. You know, of course, they have to take out their masks to eat. But, you know, when they're indoors, generally speaking, except when they're eating their masks, and that seems to be going well. We've had, you know, COVID incidence rate of something like 0.6% so far in HISD. We have a dashboard where people can go to see where we've had positive cases in the district. And it's been far lower for us than for other area school districts that have taken a different approach, that have had masks optional. So we're the largest school district in the area, and yet we have fewer students testing positive for COVID than some of our neighboring districts where masks have been optional. So I think it's been successful. We've also made a push to get employees vaccinated. We've had lots of vaccination clinics for employees, for students 12 and up, for their family members on school campuses. We're paying a stipend to employees who get vaccinated. Um, so we're doing everything we can to take, you know, those multiple layered in interventions to, to reduce COVID spread as much as possible. And we're just trying to hang on long enough for this Delta wave to go, go away. The courts are working out, you know, what's the legality of the, of the governor's order. We've had some special sessions, but the state legislature has declined to, to pass legislation to really clarify um, whether the governor has that power or not. So since the legislature hasn't acted, that leaves it in the courts. Um, the jurisdiction we're under in Harris County is the, is the Travis County Court, actually. So um, I think we're scheduled to go to trial in January of 2022. So, you know, we'll see how that court rules and it'll work its way up to the appellate system, eventually to the Texas Supreme Court. You know, sometime deep into 22, hopefully long after our kids are able to get vaccinated. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And so um, while this is working its way through the court, then you can you you just are going forward with your with your order to have it, the mandatory masks. And that's just the, the, the how it's working right right now. While, yeah, that's yeah. right now while we're in this Delta wave and before kids are able to get vaccinated, we're following CDC guidance, we're following Harris County's order, which is to follow that public health guidance and have universal masking in schools. 
Yeah. I did want to just clarify one thing too, and because people might not know, there there's a number, you kind of alluded to it, but there are a number of school districts around Houston, right? You are the largest, as you said, but there are some other districts in your area chose a different path, right? Is there is, is your sense of why that was kind of the in response to the parents in those particular districts? Or what do you attribute kind of the different approaches within the same city to? Yes, every every um, school district has made their own choices. I think in, in some cases it is based upon what um, parents in different parts of town prefer. I think it's hard for superintendents and school boards to implement a mask mandate if you know, the majority of your families are opposed to that. And especially, you know, with the, the state um, leadership taking a different approach this year than last year, then I think a lot of superintendents have said, you know, until this is settled, <laughs> then we're just going to let everybody make their own individual choice. Yeah. And I, 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 w- I will move on to other questions, but I do want to ask this one because we're just watching these scenes. I mean, people, I've saw, seen people on Twitter saying, I'm, I've never tuned into school board meetings across the country to watch these conversations happening. We've all seen these pictures of, you know, really, you know, just disrespectful and brutal kind of conversations that were happening in communities. It, while you guys were debating the mask mandate, it sounds like you've said that most of your parents were in favor. Did you have some of that in the school board meeting where there was that kind of opposition and, and vocal? opposition and or was it was that not really your experience a little bit we did have speakers come to our board meeting and while the in the overwhelming email outreach and phone calls that i received were in favor of the mask mandate there were you know a group of protesters who came in to speak to our board meeting you know we had a lovely moment at the beginning where we all stood and you know said the pledge of allegiance and then then they lined up to to speak in opposition to to the mask mandates but I think the, the speakers who came were really largely activists. You know, the parents that I've heard from, even parents with, you know, on the other side of the issue with concerns about masks, I think are, you know, much more personally concerned about their, their child. So, you know, I've spoken with people on both sides of the issue, and it's just never so contentious. It, it hasn't been like contentious with actual HISD parents, at least thus far. And I think we're fortunate in that way. You know, the other thing I'll add is that in other school districts in Texas, they've unfortunately been forced to to close schools even, right? So where they haven't been able to control outbreaks, that's led to school closures. And so I think, you know, what we've been focused on doing in HISD, you know, we're not, we're not here to stick it to the man, right? We're not here to be oppositional for oppositional stick. We're just here to do what we need to do to take care of our kids and keep our schools open so we can educate kids. And that's been our focus. And I think maybe that's why the the political discussion hasn't been so vociferous because we've, you know, we've just been focused on and been framing around, you know, what can we do to keep our schools open to keep educating our kids? Yeah. As you alluded to at the beginning, I think that that's really the goal for so many of us who are parents. We just want our kids to be able to stay in school. We know that, you know, and teachers did a heroic job last year. I think they did the best they absolutely could, but we just know that in-person learning is better. It's better for their mental health. It's better for their academics. And so I think that that's, um, that's a really smart, smart approach. Staying on the public health piece for a second. Uh, I know I live in California, Los Angeles this week, biggest school district in the country to mandate vaccines for kids coming to school for COVID along with all the other vaccines that they have to, to have to be in public school. Is that something that you guys are talking about at all yet? 
Not yet. We've taken the approach of strongly encouraging it, like I mentioned, vaccine clinics, a stipend for vaccinations. The governor's order that banned masks also banned the requirement of vaccination. So I think that's going to be the, the next um, topic for us to, to discuss is, you know, how do we how do we handle that? Yeah, and we haven't taken up the issue yet. Got it. Got it. And I guess, you know, I'd love to talk to you about, you know, we, we're obviously so focused on public health. There's so many other issues, too, about going back to school after being out of school for so long. How is that going? Are you finding any particular challenges as kids are coming back or or things that you learned during the pandemic that worked well because things were different that you wanted to keep? Or, you know, kind of what's your approach on thinking about education post pandemic? You know, I guess we're not post pandemic yet, but in this transition back to school, I should say. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, we all got a crash course, didn't we, last school year and how to do virtual schools. We very quickly in HIC became a one-to-one district, giving out laptops and um, iPads and tablets to, to every kid in the district. And I think our teachers have learned a lot of valuable skills about how to support student learning in that way. Mental health has been top of mind for us. You know, it's been a hard year for our students, their families, for our teachers too. So many people have lost someone through this pandemic and the social isolation has been hard on our adolescents, really all of our kids. And so this year we've, we've been planning for how do we provide supports now that we've got kids back in person. You know, First of all, that social interaction is so important and wonderful. Um, and that's already going to be a big help. But we are also making sure that we've got counselors in each school, that we have wraparound services in each school. We have, this has been an initiative since before the pandemic, we've really worked to build out our wraparound services in Houston, ISD, taking kind of the community schools approach. Um, we know that our kids, even pre-pandemic, would often come to school or fail to come to school because of a need that was non-academic, that would then interfere with their ability to participate in school. So, you know, things like food insecurity, access to healthcare, the pandemic has just exacerbated these kinds of challenges for our families in Houston. So it's been important to us to continue to strengthen those wraparound services. Um, We've got nurses in every school. So um, just making sure that we're giving our kids all the love and support they need because it's been a tough year for everybody. And then the other thing, of course, is our kids have been out of school. And so when we look at our student data, what we see is that students at the end of the last academic year, for the students who took our end of your screener in person, where they ended up in mathematics by the end of third grade, for instance, was below where students typically start (laughs) third grade. Yeah. Yeah. For reading, not so bad. So for reading, at least for our kids who were in person last academic year, you know, they ended the year not where they would have been in a non-pandemic year, but at least above where they would have started, right? So that we don't feel they're a full you know, school year behind. And those kind of tests can only tell you so much and kids are resilient, right? So learning is not a linear process, but it does tell us something about how much the pandemic and the disruption in kids' lives affected their learning. And so, you know, we're working really aggressively to plan for tutorials for students, to support teachers, to make sure they know how to work with kids who have had gaps in learning. 
So there's just a lot of things we're doing to make sure we're taking care of the whole child and addressing the academic needs of students this year. Yeah, absolutely. The federal government's trying to be helpful. They passing the American, not just trying to be big, big, big um, bill through the American Rescue Plan uh, to try to get some resources to people to uh, deal with the, some of the effects of the pandemic. And and some of that, of course, is coming to secondary and elementary school that through the emergency relief funds. How are you guys thinking about spending that money? Is it tied towards some of those goals you just mentioned around mental health and learning loss? Or are you thinking about other things as well? Yes, they sure are. Yeah. So we're very lucky in Houston ISD that the uh, education funding portion of the ARP, the ESSER funding, is weighted based upon need in school districts. In Houston ISD, we serve about 80% low-income students. We have some very concentrated pockets of poverty in HISD. And so that means we're getting very significant ESSER funding, um, over a billion dollars in ESSER funding to spend over three years. And so following federal guidelines, we're using it for mental health supports for kids, for pandemic safety as well. So now that we're finally getting those dollars, we're using it to revamp our ventilation systems. We've got some old schools in Houston, as I'm sure there are schools across the country. We are using it to help students most affected by uh, the pandemic. Um, In some cases, that's our special education students who need very specialized services. And so for special ed kids who were homebound and virtual last year, we're providing a lot of additional services to help them get caught up. The tutoring that I mentioned, the wraparound services, a lot of that is being funded out of the um, ESSER funding as well. So yeah, we wouldn't be able to um, do everything that we need to do to take care of our kids without these ESSER dollars. They're incredibly important. And we're working to make sure that we're really implementing best practices to help kids get caught up and supported this year. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just pick up on something you said earlier, too, because I think it's so important. It feels to me like, you know, we knew some of these things are existed. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has had an impact from things like mental health that, you know, exasperated that in a way that might not have happened if without the pandemic. But so many of these, you know, other gaps, whether, you know, these wraparound services you were talking about, these were things that were necessary before the pandemic that, that, that where I feel like COVID just shown a spotlight on some of these, these access issues and other things like that. So, you know, in thinking about what some of those challenges are that you're trying to overcome, how do you think about that in terms of addressing those gaps that that were already there, like with wraparound service being one? Are there others like that? I'm thinking broadband in particular. Maybe I hear a lot about that, for example, of you know another gap that was really apparent during the pandemic that you know when people had to use the broadband to, to access school. Are there are there other things like that that were you know maybe you kind of thought were a problem, but the pandemic really shone the light on them? Yeah. The pandemic is like any other natural disaster. This this happens with hurricanes in, in Houston, too. For too many of our students in Houston ISD, you know, their academic careers are punctuated by, you know, <laughs> one, one disaster or another. And the gaps that students face and have to overcome in order to be successful academically, you know, have been there, unfortunately, all along. So broadband access is, is one, certainly. In addition to handing out tablets and laptops, we've also had to give out hotspots because, you know, you send the kid home with their with their device, but if they can't get online, then it's, it's just a brick, right? The wraparound services, 
Don't get me wrong, the pandemic certainly increased the number of requests we received for wraparound services. You know, maybe it doubled it. But that baseline of need, you know, that half of, of where we are now was already there pre-pandemic. We actually have a data system where any teacher or adult working in a school who figures out that a kid has a need, whether it's a, a health need or um, a legal need or or even if they just need an opportunity, right? Their family isn't able to, to pay for them to participate in, a, in an after-school program, for instance, that would you know, help them get more motivated in school. Whatever it is, you can enter a referral for a wraparound service. And so we actually have numbers and tracking to see what kind of needs are coming up in Houston, how are they geographically distributed, and then what kind of need is it? So we can go to our partners and say, hey, you know, we have children with this kind of need. You want to you know, come in and work with our kids. So yeah, absolutely those needs were there. The pandemic has helped us to build that system. ESSER dollars are helping us put in place the people and the resources to address that. And I think we'll, we'll learn from this and be able to continue to, to meet students' needs in a, in a stronger way, working more closely with more partners, even after the pandemic. Yeah, that's so wonderful that you guys have that that data system in place. That seems like such a great best practice to be able to track and measure that work. It's amazing. I'm thinking about another issue where school boards have been kind of front and center in the national debate uh, recently, which has been around critical race theory. And I know in Texas, you had the legislature passed a bill and the, the governor signed, which did impact the way that teachers can talk about uh, I think current events, at least, you'll t- you'll tell me. But so this has obviously been something that's front and center for you too. Tell me about that in Texas and in your experience in Houston with with that specific issue. And it, it's just again, it's I think it's become so um, amazing to me how school boards all across the country are just kind of on the front lines of so many of these of these what you know really contentious issues. So what was that experience like for you for you in Houston? Yeah, that's starting to come come up as an issue a little bit in Houston, but. You know, critical race theory isn't something that we teach in our HISD school. So it's been very surprising for it to come up as a question. You know, are you teaching CRT? Well, no, <laughs> I didn't, didn't know what that was until, until um, people started asking. But, you know, apparently that's kind of a graduate level theory. It's not what's taught in our, in our schools. We, we teach the social studies curriculum. So, you know, we have the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, and that's what our classroom teachers are focused on teaching. Do we teach critical thinking? Yes. Do we teach current events? I'm sure in many of our classrooms, our teachers are, you know, engaging students with, you know, what what's in the news, what's relevant to them. I think that's a best practice. So we're going to have to see, and uh, you know, every time there's a new state law uh, that applies to education, the Texas Education Agency then needs to take the law, figure out what it means, right, make some rules around it, and then give it to school districts and explain to us. So like you mentioned, I, I think the new law makes sure that, you know, says that teachers can't give deference to one view or another. They have to stay very neutral in, in presenting a, a current event. I think there's also some limitations on how you can give credit for students' volunteer hours outside of school. So, you know, we're still waiting to see what the rulemaking is around that. We're still waiting to see, you know, if there are any kind of, you know, challenges to this. 
And in the meantime, we're just going to keep educating kids, right? Which means we're going to keep teaching the Texas essential knowledge and skills, helping our kids, you know, read text, think critically. Those are important parts of the of the Texas curriculum. Um, that's what we're doing in HISD. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's helpful. And I, and I, I, I you know, I framed the question kind of in an interesting way because the, the what I should say is, you know, critical race theory is, is really, I don't think actually what anybody's actually talking about, right? I mean, I don't, as you said, this is not something that's taught in elementary and high schools. This is, you know, we're talking about how, you know, how we talk about equity and how we talk about racism. And, you know, it's, 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 these are really thorny issues. And, you know, and I think that for, like you said, for the most part, you're just trying to educate your kids to the standards, to the, to the history, to have people be able to think critically. And that means being able to see things from different perspectives. And so I know it's, um, it's kind of a, a, an interesting and frustrating way that this conversation has come about to, to have the lens be this very narrow critical race theory, which is really not even relevant to most, to most school districts. So um, I just wanted to clarify that. And, Another place where you've been super vocal throughout your career and not just before you got on the school board is thinking about college and career pathways for students and making sure that they have the tools they need to succeed, you know, in the changing economy. Why has that been so important to you for so long? And, and what what are you seeing that you think is 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 going well or that you're, you think is promising? And has any of that changed post-COVID? Yes, this has been a passion area of mine. I was a high school teacher for seven years. I also worked with a nonprofit for four or five years called Project Grad Houston, helping um, first-generation college-going students get ready for college and be successful there. So it's really important to me that we raise our standards for all students and make sure that we're setting kids up for success beyond high school. You know, so I think, you know, the era of just getting kids to the finish line of high school graduation, you know, passing your state exams in Texas, those are the star exams, um, and then pushing out them out the door with a diploma, you know, that's not good enough. In today's economy, students need to be able to get some education beyond high school. Maybe that's a certification, maybe that's an associate's degree, or it could be, could be college, but, and, and we need to be really making sure that kids have the skills to succeed in all of those areas. So in, in Houston, we've really led the way on that. We, in 2017, soon after I joined the board, set some pretty ambitious goals for students in terms of being ready for college and career. And the district took a hard look at our CTE programs, our career and technical education programs, and said, okay, are we actually offering courses and trainings and certifications that are needed in the Houston area. And so they went and talked with businesses in the area and talked with school communities because Houston ISD covers a big geographic region. So even on, you know, Northeast Houston, Southeast Houston, different jobs may, may be available. We've grown our CTE programs and the number of students earning certifications in the last five years by some 300%. It's really tremendous. And so more and more students are graduating high school with a marketable trade, you know, be it a plumbing certification or a construction certification, welding. And, you know, for many of these kids, you know, even if you're going through college, wouldn't you rather work your way through college earning 30 or $40 an hour than 10 or $15 an hour? And we've also put college 
guidance counselors into every high school in Houston ISD. For our larger high schools, many of them. <laughs> this is something we're also using ESSER dollars to expand because we know the rate of kids going to college has plummeted you know, nationwide. Um, less in Houston ISD actually, because we have these, we've been working on these programs for some years. So we're working with students, even starting at the middle school level to begin to do career exploration. So students know what is it, you know, what happens after high school, right? What does college mean? What's the difference between a two-year program and a four-year program and the doctorate program? And what are all those jobs out there? And what's interesting to me? So we're doing college and career exploration early. We're providing students whose parents may not have gone on beyond high school the guidance they need to navigate the college application system, which is complex for any family. <laughs> We're paying for kids to take the SAT. We pay for their AP and IB exams. We've seen tremendous growth, and that, that's been an area of focus for us for a while in HISD. And we've seen 65% growth in, over the last 10 years in students passing AP exams and earning college credit. So we're, we've been focusing on college and career for a while in HIC. We've seen a lot of growth. I'm proud, by the way, of how we've expanded special education access to many of these programs. We're seeing a lot of our students with disabilities earning CTE certifications as well. And I'm proud to say that when we look at college and career readiness data, comparing HISD to the state, when you disaggregate it and you look at our student groups, each of our student groups outperforms the state of Texas in terms of our college and career readiness. And actually, uh, in 2019, when the state went and updated its um, some of our educational funding and kind of did an education omnibus bill, they came out and said, well, you know, everybody across the state of Texas needs to be setting goals for students in terms of college and career readiness. And we said, well, we did that in 2017. We'll just keep on doing that. You know, glad the rest of the state's catching up to us. That's so great. That's so great. Do you have any partnerships? I know that a lot of people have developed partnerships with either community colleges or, or companies, or, I mean, how do you think about not just this from a school perspective, but from a community wide perspective in terms of aligning uh, education with, um, with careers? That's so important. We offer college, they're called dual credit classes in, I think, almost all of our high schools in Houston ISD. And that's in partnership with our local community college, Houston Community College, Lone Star Community College, a few different colleges in the area. We also partner with UT um, to offer some, some classes through them as well. So we have partnerships with a number of different colleges. We also have early college high school. So some of our students are earning not just CTE certifications, but a whole, <laughs> you know, associate's degree. Sometimes they, they walk for that degree before they walk for their high school diploma. So they actually get their college degree first. So those partnerships are important. We also do have partnerships with a number of employers. So they are um, working with our students to offer internships, to mentor students as they're working towards certain certifications. And, and often they'll hire our students as well, or at least, you know, say, you know, if you go through this program with us, then you're guaranteed an interview. So there's a lot of opportunities like that in our, in our schools in Houston ISD. And that's a, an important part of all of our college and career readiness work is we want to be relevant to the area and we want to be 
giving students the information about how to access institutions of higher education and how to navigate the the job market as well in the Houston area. Yeah. I you know what's so impressive about what you just told us is about what you said earlier too about the what did you say 80% of your uh, students are low income. I think you, if I remember that statistic right, I think three quarters of your students are Latino background. I love that some of the, those programs about early college and just and just getting those opportunities early in high school to find paths right for success is so 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 important. I, I know that you have also recently announced a, a program. Um, to try to give Latino students more of a voice in the school district or in their schools. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Latinos for Education is a nonprofit in the Houston area that has been working to help make sure, yeah, like you said, Latinos have a voice. And it is not quite 75%, but well over half of our families in Houston ISD are Latino. And it's so important that we are serving this community well and making sure that all of our schools are are welcoming and supportive of families who may not speak English as a first language, making sure that we have translation services. And Latinos for Education had an initiative working with families in the Gulfton area. And so the initiative that you read about in the news was to recruit and train, I think they're all moms actually, I'm not sure if that was by design, but to to educate them about the educational data in Houston ISD and to let them talk from their experience too. You know, what are they seeing in their schools in the Gulfton area? And the Gulfton area, by the way, is um, where many refugees that come to Houston are resettled. And so refugees from Latin America, from many countries in Latin America, but also from all over the world, from Africa, from the Middle East, we're getting a lot of African refugees, Southeast Asia and Central Asia as well. And so it's an area where it's not old immigration, it's families who are new to this country, who are grateful to be able to send their kids to school every day. They may have had gaps in their education, um, but who aren't sure how to navigate the system and to advocate themselves. So I think what's wonderful about what Latinos for Education has done is for them to let parents know, okay, here's the condition, but then here's who you go talk to, right? You have an elected representative, right? You have a school board whose job is to represent you and to make sure that your values, and education is a strong one for immigrants, I'm the daughter of immigrants myself, are represented and that your kids are getting the education they need to be successful in this country. So there was a cohort of, of parents who went through this program, maybe 15 or so, and they invited the superintendent and the two trustees who represent the Gulfton area to sit down with them. We had a conversation. My Spanish is good enough to understand just about 80% of, of what most parents say. So there was translation services so that we all could understand each other 100%, right? They can understand our English. We can understand their Spanish. And then they followed up with us saying, you know, okay, here are the three areas we really want you to pay attention to. And they were special education, after-school programs, you know, making sure kids are getting the quality education, quality teachers in, in their schools. And what I've been delighted to see, too, is that, you know, it wasn't just a one shot. Okay, you've finished your program, you've met with your trustees, you know, done. No, it's more than that. They came to our board meeting, too, so they could speak to the full board um, and say, you know, 
I see that you're talking about special education today. Well, here are our experiences in the schools. And that's so helpful for us because as a board, we've set up a, a board monitoring system to monitor progress in our areas of priority. So college and career readiness is one we've talked about. Special education is another one. And so we see data, um, if not every month and every two or three months as a board around special education. But to have that brought to life by our parents is so valuable as well because um, it puts a face to the numbers and it helps us put into context the strategies that the superintendent is discussing and asking us to fund because we can really see, okay, this is addressing the concerns that we're hearing from the community. Yeah, yeah. That's so great. So you mentioned uh, the value of education, being a daughter of immigrants yourself. I find it absolutely fascinating when we think about your path into public service a little bit, that you finished after high school, ended up at Harvard for physics and math. Were you thinking at the time that uh, that education would be a, a place you, a career? Or were you thinking more that you were going to go into science and math, you know, as more of a practitioner, as a scientist or a mathematician? I wasn't, you know, so I thought I was going you know, to eventually become a, a scientist. But I'll tell you a story. When I was in eighth grade, um, my geometry teacher at the time, Teresa Moore, a teacher at Rogers Middle School, she looked at me one day, and I don't know what we were doing, right? It was a small class. I think we were you know, proving a theorem or something, right? And I was always the student who was helping <laughs> other kids in the class, right? And she looked at me and she says, you are going to be a great teacher one day. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> I, it, to <laughs> me, it was something that just ki- kind of came out of nowhere, right? Because I knew I loved math. I wanted to do math, but I hadn't thought about being a teacher. But I think she saw something in me that was real because as I continued through college, you know, I would always go back and spend my summers doing math camp. Like as I like as a counselor, right? Helping other kids learn to love math because, you know, if you're nerdy enough, that's what, that's what you want to spend your summers doing, right? It's going to math camp to do like it. extra intensive math. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, so I did. So after college, I signed up to do Teach for America. And still, even at that time, I thought, okay, I'll teach for, you know, well, maybe not just two years, but two years, four years or something, right? I'll make a good impact on the classroom, but then I'll go back to become a scientist. Um, but then I fell in love with teaching. And so I've been in or around education ever since. What was it about teaching that spoke to you or speaks to you, I should say? I have always loved, and I think this is what Ms. Moore saw in me, I've always loved learning and I've always loved seeing other people learn. Just that spark, that joy, right? I'm like, oh, I figured it out. I get it. You know, and it could be math. It could be English too, right? Like, oh my goodness, like this book, right, is satire on this other book. And and look at how (laughs) these two, you know, structures align and, you know, how this change makes this commentary on this other one. Like, that's super exciting to me. I guess I'm just a total nerd. But I love seeing that spark go off for students too, right? So as a science teacher, as I taught high school physics, you know, I would always push my kids to ask questions about the world. This is natural curiosity kids have, right? Like, why is the sky blue? How does this thing work? That can get squelched, right, by book learning sometimes that's dry. and just seems like the memorization of stuff that's not relevant. But I think scientists have this curiosity about the world. 
And I always tried to spark that joy and that curiosity in my students too, because when, when you see it, right, when you see kids, especially kids who, who may have hard lives, right, who may have worked an eight-hour shift and closed at their restaurant last night, right, before making it to your classroom again <laughs> the next day, come into school and, like, start playing around with the toy cars, right? And experimenting to see what kind of parabola you're getting when you, when you throw it or roll it off the table. Like that's, that's to me, that's joy and it's play, right? It's what kid, young kids do naturally. And then we forget as we get older. So I've always just loved learning. I love sparking that in others. That's one half of it. And then the second thing that I fell in love with as a teacher is just, it is, profound. And, and I feel like it's almost holy in a way to have the opportunity to, to serve your community. When you teach in a public school, this is where all of America comes together, right? We all take our kids, right? Our future, and we send them together <laughs> into public schools, right? to get an education and to be ready to be the future of our country and to lead us and to take care of us when we're all old and gray, right? <laughs> and our kids are, they're trying to make it, you know, this is the American dream, right? Whether you're an immigrant or whether you're born here, like you're just trying to do better for yourself and for your families and for the next generation. And to be able to come and to serve that, right? And the trust that families put into you as a teacher, right? Is, is tremendous and it's profound to have this relationship of trust with a family, to be able to help their kid learn. But also, also often public schools are where, are, are, you know, the, the one trusted institution in a community where people will go to when they have non-academic needs as well. For a family to turn to you and say, I have this thing going on, I don't know, I'm turning to you and, and to be in that position of trust to help or to be in a position to advocate for access to healthcare, for instance, right, for a community, because you've seen it up front, how it affects your children, right? It's just really profound, meaningful work. And so I, I fell in love with it and, and, and continue to be in love with it. Yeah, that's so wonderful. That's so wonderful, Anne. And so, and I guess, what was the spark then that, uh, or the catalyst to then decide to run for office to, to be on the school board and, and go down that path? Oh, that was another thing that I thought I would never do. So, <laughs> you know, so exploring public policy issues and seeing how they affected my students and my families led me to go back to Harvard for a second master's degree. So my first master's degree was in physics. Um, my second, I went back for a master's in public policy as well. And I thought, you know, okay, I'll be a policy wonk, right? I'll write policy, but I never thought I would run for office. You know, Harvard had all kinds of programs, right? From Harvard Square to the Oval Office, right? But I, I never participated in any of those because I was like, that's not me. I'm not going to be a politician. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was working in HISD schools and seeing how policy decisions at the district level affected our students. And unfortunately, it was in a, well, you know, I saw some positive examples. And then I also saw some really negative examples um, when I was a teacher that made me look up and say, wait a minute, who runs these schools anyway? <laughs> and to discover, okay, there's a superintendent and then there's a school board, which apparently I've been voting for, right? But not paying attention to. 
that led me first into um, just community advocacy. So it first led me into saying, okay, well, I just need to tell the people in charge what's going on, right? So, you know, you get your students together, get your parents and teachers, and you form delegations and march off to the school board and say, okay, let's sit down. Let's talk about what's happening in our classroom and let's make things better, right? But when things didn't necessarily get better through that route, it led to me volunteering on school board campaigns saying like, okay, well, we just need to elect better people, right? But then when the people I worked I volunteered for didn't win. We said, okay, well, shoot, we need better, we need better um, candidates for office, right? Like who can run, right? And somebody said, well, how about you, Anne? You went to HASC schools, you went to Harvard. I was like, what, me? Wait, no. I think like for many women, I had to be asked multiple times, right? Before I would agree to run for office, but many people did. And eventually I did. And, you know, not something I thought I would do originally, but I'm, I'm so glad I did just running and I didn't win the first time, but just running was an opportunity to talk to people I would never have talked to because we're all citizens. We all get to vote. Right. So automatically we have something in common and getting to talk to people about education, which is something that's important to people, whether you have kids in schools or not, because it's something we do together in America is great. And and then eventually becoming a trustee and being able to put pen to paper or actually type on a laptop mostly and see the policies that I draft turn into actual programs that impact kids is tremendous. You know, our whole wraparound services program, when I got onto the board, I think we had active programs at one or two schools in the district. And I had seen how important it was what I worked at for my kids. And I'd seen how well it was working at a school all the way across town on the other side of Houston. And so we just wrote into policy, you know, this is, we need to grow our community schools in HISD. And now we have our broad services at every school in HISD. Um, and it's just become part of how we do business in HISD. And I hear from new trustees and principals all the time, right? And, and, all across Houston, you know, like we need our wraparound specials. This is so important. And I see the families impacted and I see the work happening and it's just you know, tremendously profound and rewarding. Yeah. Do you think you'll continue to run for public office in the future? You know, I take things, you know, one, one step at a time. I am up for re-election this fall and so I'm running. It's exciting times in Houston ISD. We have, we've really um, hit our stride in terms of setting clear goals and, and working steadily towards them. You know, we're re-upping. We set five-year goals when I first came onto the board. We've just adopted a new round of, of those goals. We've hired a new superintendent who's off to a great start. We need to run a bond to um, update our elementary schools in HISD. So want to see some of our special education reform work through. So I'm all in to continue to support our new superintendent and make sure that our, our kids in our district are, are continuing to head in the right direction. So, so yeah, that's, my, that's what I'm running for. And that's what I'm committed to for at least the next four years. That's amazing. Well, I just, you know, one of the things I love about getting to do this podcast is to just be with you folks who are on the front lines of so many important issues and hear about how you got there. And I just want to say to you in particular, school, again, I mean, school boards have really, I think, become a, you know, 
such a, a place of always been important in terms of education, but you've been ha- been pulled into so many other conversations right now. So I want to thank you for your service during this particularly challenging time, but also just really excited about all the work you guys are doing in Houston. And I think a lot of it is really a national model. And so we're proud to to work with you and get to support some of the work you're doing and to highlight some of the work you're doing. And just thank you so much for your service and for agreeing to come talk to us a little bit today. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.